You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. We continue in um, uh, the summer series of uh, parables that uh, basically have been signed to various ministers by David in his absence. Um, And as you uh, recall from previous um, messages, particularly the first one in the series by Will, he gave a a lengthy uh, discussion of what a parable was all about, why we have parables, why Jesus spoke in parables, and what can we get out of parables. And just in a very simple kind of um, summary fashion, uh, you recall the, the Jesus spoke in parables, and there are other parables in Scripture uh, in the Old Testament, but Jesus primarily used parables um, to paint word pictures, that to help people uh, to understand about God and his kingdom. And he would use uh, the things around him, uh, nature, uh, stories. Uh, he would create dramas, illustrate, uh, illustrating his messages. And uh, these stories appeared, uh, excuse me, uh, appealed to uh, nearly everybody. Uh, rich and poor, young and old, learned and unlearned. Because they were stories that were real life stories taken from real life situations, taken from the fields, taken from families, taken from various people. They didn't necessarily, they weren't necessarily actual events that occurred, but they were illustrations to demonstrate something of himself and particularly a teaching about the kingdom of God. Well, today we come to a parable that's got a bit of a twist to it. Now, why do I say that? And what kinds of twist is there in Jesus' parable uh, found in Matthew this morning? Uh, All the other parables, as I said, may not be actual events, but they could have been. They were stories that were taken from, um, they could have actually taken place you remember the, the passage that um, Isaac, uh, the intern, spoke on the prodigal son. Now, a prodigal son is not something out of the ordinary, unfortunately. Um, a, and so he, Jesus used a prodigal son to demonstrate a message. Um, a man who throws a wedding feast is not something out of the ordinary. Just five verses prior to what we're going to be looking at this morning. Uh, A man had a vineyard, and he had two sons, and he sent one in to to go work in the the vineyard, and and the son said yes, but didn't go, and he sent the other son in, and he said no, but ended up going. How many of you have sons that you, or daughters that you have said, please do something, and they don't do it? And then later, it's a real-life kind of event. Now, the parable we're looking at this morning um, just simply would not have occurred. 
And to think of it as occurring in a real-life situation is actually a preposterous thought. It just simply would not have taken place in a real-life setting, and Jesus knew it. Let's look at this, and we'll try to unpack this a bit, a bit, uh, a bit more. We could have the Matthew 21. Thank you. Listen to another parable. There's a landowner, landowner who planted a vineyard. He built. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect its fruit, to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants, they beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take the inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone? The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parable, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a, uh, that he was a prop prophet. So we look at this parable and let's look at some of the elements in it. There's a kind, generous vineyard owner. That's a real-life situation. That can happen. There's nasty cheating, malicious servants, or tenants, excuse me. That's also real life. The owner sending his servants to collect the rent or to get the fruit of the vine. That's quite normal also. But then the tenants repeatedly killing and maligning the servants that were sent, and the owner continuing to send more, and finally send his son, that just wouldn't happen. Let me read what one uh, commentator wrote. No owner of a vineyard who had had a servant killed would then send other servants also to be killed, and on top of that, his own son, only to have him killed also. He would immediately bring the police down upon these men and at once end their career in the vineyard. 
The reason for this astounding imagery is that in his long suffering, God does act, in fact, did act in the way here depicted. But there is no imagery within the experience of men that can picture the amazing grace and patience of God. The hearers might well explain why we've never heard of an owner doing such a thing, not stopping until his own son was killed. Of course they had not. But this is the very point Jesus wants to make. With this unheard of imagery, Jesus pictures the unheard of wickedness of these Jewish leaders who who murdered not only the prophets sent for their salvation, but were now about to murder God's own son. There's a lot in that. There's an immense amount in that. Let's begin to to unpack it a, a wee bit. Um, and by looking at this in context. Now, we've read the parable. Let's put it in context. Jesus is, it's in the midst of Holy Week. Jesus has already had what is traditionally known as the triumphal entry. He has come into Jerusalem. He's waiting this, going through this week of events that culminate on Friday and with the ultimate climax on Sunday with his resurrection. Probably this is happening on Tuesday, three days before his crucifixion. And in this parable, Jesus is speaking to the, not just the people around him, but he's particularly focusing on the leaders, the religious leaders. Describes, well, in this particular case, um, the, the chief priest, the elders, and then later on in the passage, it talks about the Pharisees. These were the religious leaders. Now, back in those days, <clears throat> one did not become a religious leader without knowing quite well the scriptures. Obviously, the Old Testament scriptures. And I, I can just say, I, w- I would have loved to have been there. And Jesus is someplace in Jerusalem, around these dusty walls and the dusty streets, and, and once again, he starts talking about a vineyard. Just five verses prior, he spoke about a vineyard with the two sons. And now he's talking about another vineyard. He had already spoken about the vineyard uh, in John 15, about the vine and about abiding. And these, as I said, these religious leaders, they knew their scriptures. And Jesus, in his very gentle, kind, but powerful way, is looking at these guys square in the eyeball. And you can see them turning their glance. He's not looking at me. It's not, this isn't about me. He's turning this way. They're just sort of melting in their tunics, as it were. Why is that? Because they knew their scriptures. 
They knew very well what was going on. And it was just too painful, too penetrating, too convicting to listen to Jesus one more time talking about the vineyard. And why is that? If we can have Isaiah, you forgive me, I just can't say Isaiah. I can say Isaiah in my English. I can say Isaiah in Spanish. I can't say Isaiah. Isaiah. I'm working on it. I'll get there sometime. Today it's probably going to be Isaiah. Isaiah 5, parable of the vineyard. This is what the leaders knew about the vineyard. Well, I'll just see if I can read it from this small print over there. I will sing for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And he looked for justice, but he saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Put yourself in the tunics, as it were, of the leaders. And they're hearing a parable about a vineyard. It's not just a coincidence because Jesus may have been standing next to a vineyard. He is talking about them. The vineyard is the picture of Israel. And its emphasis on Israel is that covenant relationship that God established with his people. Many, many centuries prior, when he said, I will choose a people and I will be your God and you will be my people and your name is called Israel and, and I will give you a land and I will make you a blessing and I will pour out my blessing upon you and I just simply want you to live by the ways that I have required. In obedience with a contrite heart, with trust, with faithfulness, without trying to be like the other nations. And I will bring blessing to you. Israel, Israel, my people, be my people. 
and you will be like this vineyard. And you will produce fruit. You know, a vineyard is only good for its fruit. The only thing a vineyard produces are grapes. When the grapes, when the harvest comes, the vineyard is pruned back. Have you ever tried to make anything of a vine? It's thrown into the fire. You can't make a house with it. You can't make bricks with it. You can't make furniture with it. The vine in and of itself is useless. It's the fruit that is powerful. It's the fruit that God wants. And the fruit that he was requiring from these religious leaders as he put them. This is my vineyard. I put you religious leaders in this vineyard to take care of it. And I've done all I need to do for it. And when it comes to collecting the fruit, where is the fruit? What happened to it? I seek justice. And I get bloodshed. I seek righteousness. And I get mayhem. Actually, these words, actually there's a word play with these two sets of words, not necessarily depicting that they were unable to reach a standard of living, but they were actually distorting good into evil. When, God, what, and when, when what God requires, overall, generally speaking, Broad stroke is shalom. Shalom is peace. It's not just, oh, I feel good, I'm peaceful, I can sleep well tonight. It's a broad, ever-powerful motif for how society should be. A well-being in economy and in politics and in social life, and in family life, and in business life. It's pervading. And this is what God wanted to his people. And instead, he finds bloodshed. He finds mayhem. He finds chaos. And we come back to um, the parable at hand. On Matthew 21... Isaiah 5 is a parable of a vineyard and it centers on the productivity. It centers on the fruit. And there was bad fruit. I looked for good fruit. I got nothing but bad fruit. And Matthew 21 is looking, is centering, focusing on the vicious tenants and their pathetic ways of dealing with uh, the the trust that had been given to them. Just very briefly, we see again, an owner had a vineyard, he, he, he prepared it, he, he dug the wells, he, he made, made space for the fruit so the grapes could go in there and they could produce the wine. He built walls around it. He did everything that he could to do, <coughs> that he knew to do. He went on a journey and he left the... Um, vineyard in the hands of tenants which we saw from Isaiah 
And we see from this passage as well. <coughs> excuse me. <clears throat> that these were the permanent religious leaders of Israel. The servants who then were sent to collect the fruit once uh, the harvest time came. The servants are, are, the imagery is the prophets that came to warn and to, to collect and to do uh, what God was telling them uh, to, to, to do with their warnings and their pleadings. Who wanted the fruit of humility and righteousness and faithful covenant, uh, covenant faithfulness. And over and over and over again, these servants were killed, maligned, thrown out to the point where the owner said, one last opportunity, one last opportunity, I will send my son. Surely, surely, they will recognize my son and they will respect his authority and they will do what I've asked them to do. And they sent his son. They saw their son and said, hmm, you know who that is? That's the son. You know, if we get rid of him, it's all ours. He doesn't have anybody else to send. The vineyard is ours. Let's do it. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And when the owner of the vineyard, Jesus asked these, <coughs> Jesus asked these uh, leaders, uh, okay, now when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? The leaders, thinking themselves very clever, um, answers to their own peril. And they said, ah, he'll bring those wretches to a wretched end. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Imagine yourselves, mom and dad, you've got an 18, 19-year-old son, just got his driver's license, and he's asked to borrow the car. It's in your name, of course. And, and off he goes. And a couple of weeks later, at least this was the custom in Spain. I've not been in, in uh, Britain long enough to know how things work. But traffic violations were sent to your home. After 22 years in Spain, give me a break. I got a couple of traffic violations. They're sent to your home. And there's a picture of your, of your registration and with the date and what you were doing. And because the car's registered in my name, Jen and I would have to sit down and look at our diaries and say, who was driving? It's such delight when it wasn't me. Now imagine, Dad, you've got a traffic violation that's arrived in the post. And you open it and you study it and... You think, hmm, was it me going 107 miles an hour? 
on the road to Paris at 1.30 in the morning? Who could it have been? And so your son comes home. He's totally unaware of what's going on. And so you invent a story. Just sitting casually around the dinner table. <clears throat> and you invent a story, for example, you've been listening to BBC Two radio or something. Old guys do that, I guess. And there's a talk show, and they're, they're talking about, uh, uh, you know, traffic violations. And should they be lenient to such violators, youngsters who've just gotten their driver's license? That was, hey, 1.30 in the morning. There's no traffic. He's just having fun. He's just being a boy. And there's callers that say, no, no, no. Yes, yes, yes. No, no, no. And, and father says, so son, what do you think should happen? He says, oh, dad, no. No, that's 107 miles an hour. That's pretty bad. That's pretty bad. Whoever did that should be fined. The maximum, 500 pounds. Should have his license suspended for six months. And should get 15 points on his record. And father says, interesting. Could you explain this then? He answers the question to his own peril. Just as the Pharisees and the leaders answered Jesus' question, what should I do with these people in the, in the vineyard? These wicked tenants who maligned and killed the servants, even the owner of the son, what should I do? Oh, get rid of them. Get rid of them, they're wretched. And at this point, the parable ends. But Jesus' interaction with the leaders does not. He gets that peering and penetrating stare into each. And he says, have you never read the scriptures? Of course they've read the scriptures. And you can just see them again in fear. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone or the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. Now at that point you'd like to see the chief priests and leaders say, oops, you're right. We blew it. Apologize. I ask for forgiveness. I come to you, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. But no, they did the, ex the exact opposite of that. The chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parable, and they knew he was talking about them. And instead of coming to them, coming to him in humility, they used their authority, they abused their authority to now start looking for ways to arrest him. But of course they were afraid. Because, wait a minute, these people are saying he's a prophet. And if we take him, then the people are going to get... What do we do? 
They're cowards. And they're standing on false authority. And they've been, they've been had, they've been shown what they have done. And we just see the glance, we just take a brief glance at the motivation of these tenants, the leaders. And even in our society, how many times, over and over and over again, do we see in our society today, as we see here, get rid of the authority. Take away the authorities. Whether it's the authority of the Almighty God, or the authority of parents, or the authority of schoolmasters, or the authority of teachers, any authority, you can't touch me really. Get rid of the authority, and it will be mine to live. It will be, uh, I can enjoy my life as I determine. It will be my vineyard to do as I determine. No constraints, no obligations, no higher authority. I, in myself, have this power, as it were, to produce this shalom, as it were, and I don't need any exterior help. I've got it all within me. Just ask. How much of our society depicts that without any willingness to even consider that there might be a higher authority than ourselves. You see, the problem with this, with the leaders, with society today, is that they stumbled over the stone the capstone that the builders rejected, Jesus Christ. They stumbled over him. They either cast it aside, they walked around, they, they just, they couldn't get their heads wrapped around the fact that Jesus, as Paul writes in Ephesians, he's the chief cornerstone. He holds the building together. So, <laughs> You see, Jesus is the center of this passage. As the sun, as the cornerstone, the one that is rejected by so many. And Jesus' final words in this passage are crucial. As he's looking to these leaders, he says, I will take the kingdom of God. He says, the kingdom of God will be taken from you. You. And it will be given to a people who will produce the fruit. At that point, you see Jesus is depicting, he's, he's prophesying very, very close events that are about to occur. His, his uh, crucifixion, his resurrection, the coming of the Holy Spirit, and and what uh, the end of Matthew uh, is the um, the Great Commission: go into all the nations. A new thought. It's not go back into the vineyard. It's go into all the nations. 
and bring about solid, final proof. Another commentator writes on, the, uh, on this passage. He says, the leaders have failed to carry out their obligations to God, both in their personal lives and in leading the nation of Israel. Their privileged role in carrying God's vineyard slash kingdom is now being taken away and given to a people producing its fruit. That people, people, is you and me. To the nations, we are those who have received that kingdom through Jesus Christ. It's being taken away and giving, given to a people producing its fruit. The church will be a new people, a nation, a people consisting of disciples, both Jews and Gentiles, gathered out of many nations. As I said, Matthew 28, 19, go into all the nations, and from all those nations, a people will be gathered and brought together as one new nation. From 1 Peter 2, 9, I believe Sinclair spoke last week about this. It's not up yet, so I haven't listened to it. But they, they were brought into one nation, making us the people of God. Singular, and in the unfolding of God's kingdom in the present age. This is what that parable is about. I will be your God, and you will be my people. Founded upon the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. And where Jesus is, he makes the building straight with, and produces good, solid fruit. And sometimes in the simplest and most unorthodox way. And I would like to close with a personal anecdote. In the beginning of our ministry career, we lived in Mexico. We lived in Acapulco, a resort city of, at the time, a little over a million people, perhaps. Vast, vast, vast majority of the people uh, did not live on the beaches and in the high-rise hotels. They lived in shanty towns and slums. That was the people, as it were, to whom Jan and I went to start a church. Now, I don't mean this to be a classist, but the, the poverty of developing nations is nothing like I've seen in the poverty, as it were, of the West. I'm talking poverty. I'm talking one-room homes, dirt floors. I'm talking children two and three years old who looked like they were eight or nine months pregnant because of maltrition. I'm talking about thin hair of children. I'm talking about uh, big, big gullies and ditches in the, I guess I could call it a road, um, but where the pigs laid in the dirt, in the, in the slime to cool off a bit, and the chickens went all around. And here we are, uh, middle-class people, um, fairly recently out of seminary, got a fantastic education under my belt, uh, as white as I can be, 
and um, as, with as middle class values as I can possibly have and fresh out of language study with about as poor of Spanish as one can have. And I'm sent out to start a church amongst these people. Do you see anything wrong with this picture? At the time, I didn't. Wow, was I blind. And not only that, sent door to door. What do you do when they don't have doors? And here we go, I and another Mexican brother traipsing through the mud. I probably even was wearing khaki trousers and a navy blue shirt and penny loafers. And here we are traipsing through the mud, door to door, asking if anybody would like to have a Bible study. Did it ever dawn on me about the literacy, literacy rate? Did it ever cross my mind about if they said yes, where would we do it? They don't have a place to sit. And what do we do with the chickens and the pigs that are, that are all over the place? And what do we do with all the children that are up and down and all over the, everywhere? Never crossed my mind. And we just went. And guess what? One guy said yes. I said, are you sure? You really, are, you, are you serious? You want Bible study? He said, yes. I don't really know to this day whether he understood my Spanish or not. But he did understand, and we both understood, Saturday at 4 o'clock, I would come back to his house. And Saturday at 4 o'clock, I went back to his house. And I was too, st the guy who was with me couldn't come. And I was too stubborn to ask somebody else to come with me. And I was too stupid to ask somebody else to come with me. So off I went. Now thankfully, I didn't sit down and prepare a, a, a five-page Bible study uh, comparing Greek words and context and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I didn't really know what I was going to do. Um, Jan said, what are you going to do? I said, I don't really know. I'm going to pray a lot on the way out. And, and I'm going to trust the Holy Spirit. Isn't that what somebody is supposed to do? And I had one, one idea in mind. I'm going to sit there with this gentleman and I'm going to ask him the same question that Jesus asked Peter. Who do you say that I am? And I'm going to see what he says. And we're just going to take it from there. And we probably were together for 45, 30, 45 minutes. I don't know if he understood what I was saying. I don't know if I understood what I was saying or intending to say. He was a man of few words. I took his grunts to mean yes. They could have meant no. They could have meant I have no idea. They could have meant when are you leaving? But I took them to mean yes. 
And I think he might have said the right answers. So when I returned home, Jan said, how'd it go? He said, well, I think maybe he understood, because we probably went to John 3.16 and, and talked about other who Jesus is. Do you understand? Yes. Would you like to commit your life to Jesus? Yes. Would you like to pray? No. You do it for me? Okay. Can I do it in English? And I walked away, and he wanted me to come back. And he wanted me to come back. Now, I later learned because I was so, so, so desperately out of my element. I had never seen such poverty. I had never known such poor people. I had never been in their homes. I'd never eaten their food. I'd never walked their streets. And here I was expecting a Bible study. What do middle class people do? They start a Bible study. And you know what? Today, there's still a church in that area. There's still a church in that area. That man has gone on to be with the Lord. Recently, his daughter found me on Facebook. She's the age of our children. They played together in the streets with the pigs, flicking marbles. That's what poor kids do. And she said, Hermano Tomas, do you remember me? I named the church and I won the Bible that was offered for naming the church Prince of Peace. And the church still exists. Some 35 years later. Now what happened? Everything was wrong about the messenger. Nothing was wrong about the message. Because we focused on the cornerstone. We focused on Jesus Christ. Who do you say that I am? You are the Messiah. You are the Savior. And Jesus' response to, to Peter was, and upon this rock, or upon this confession that you are the Christ, I will build my church. And a church was begun. Are you here wondering if this, what this cornerstone is about? Are you wondering, is it really true? Can I trust myself to him? Are you things in your life that I just don't know? Can I step over the edge and give it all to him? Yes. Yes, you can. He's firm. He's foundational. He keeps the building together. He's the only thing that keeps the building together. And he's there extending his arms and says, receive my son and don't sidestep him. And don't pretend like he's not there. And don't pretend like you can do it without him.
Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your love. We thank you that you are the cornerstone, Jesus. Help us as a church that we would never reject the stone that the builders rejected. And that we would see you on the cross. We would see you in the grave. We would see you resurrected for our sins. That we can have life. We can have freedom. And we can give ourselves into you completely, totally, and wholeheartedly. For I ask it in your name. Amen. Let's stand and sing. Um, Salvation belongs to our God. And then remain standing for the benediction. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you.